Well, on Monday morning, uh, news, social media, were all talking about one single event, one incident, and if you're on the news or social media, one picture. It was Will Smith slapping Chris Rock on stage at the Academy Awards, and cue the music. <laughs> well, everyone and his dog had a view on this incident, whether it be journalists, celebrities, commentators, leaders, even pastors. Everyone had something to say. It was causing a stir, a debate. What happened? Who was right? Who was wrong? Was it staged? Should we even be talking about it? Well, if we rewind almost 2,000 years and put ourselves in the feet of the early church, uh, this issue we find here of Gentiles coming to faith, circumcision following the law of Moses, it was causing a stir, a debate among believers within the early church. There's so much debate about this that we have here in Acts chapter 15, a gathering of all the bigwigs, all the prominent leaders of the church, sort of like a members meeting, but more like a universal meeting of all the church leaders at the time, is called the Jerusalem Council around 4950 50 AD. And in this council meeting, they discussed about this issue, whether Gentiles had to be circumcised and adopt the law of Moses to essentially become a Jew, to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. You see, this wasn't a church meeting about the colour of the carpet in the church. It was about a core gospel issue, the nature of how we are saved. We don't have uh, many of these or any of these universal church councils these days. The closest we have are probably within uh, denominational groups or big churches like Queensland Baptist is having one, an annual assembly this week. And the more Episcopal churches, they have more significant ones. For example, the Anglicans in Queensland and New South Wales, they're both meeting this year and next year and bouncing around this issue of same-sex marriage. Uh, well, Ju the Jerusalem Council, it was the first of a number of significant church councils as the early church grew. For those of you who are interested in history, at the Council of Nicaea was in 325 AD, and that was debating about the nature of Christ, how divine or how human Jesus was. The Council of Constantinople, 381 AD, debated the nature of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Godhead. The Council of Ephesus, Chalcedon in the 400s AD, another aspect of the nature of Christ. And in all of these gatherings, the leaders met, and they met to protect aspects of the gospel message, submitting to God's word amidst false, unbiblical, and poisonous teachings. In fact, we today are benefactors of all of this, and while false teaching is still around today, these sorts of events, like we see in Acts 15, they have helped us today to be clear on the Bible and to be clear on the good news of life in Jesus. And for those who hear about these councils and go, oh, it's just nerd talk, it's just academic, scholarly stuff, we ought to care about these debates because a tainted gospel, 
a tainted good news is no gospel. It's no good news. Al Mola, he says, good news with heresy is like a drink mixed with poison. It kills the hearer instead of giving the hearer life. So as we finish our time in the book of Acts this term, we look at, we focus on this Jerusalem council in Acts 15, and we see what is happening, what this meeting, this council is all about. And the issue arises a few years after Paul's missionary journey, and we pick it up in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, have a look. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. See, at this point in time in Acts, the church in Antioch was well established and some Jewish believers in Jesus had gone up to Antioch from Jerusalem and they were telling their Gentile believers that they had to be circumcised. They had to follow the law of Moses in order to be considered saved. This caused a stir because it's like saying, you believe in Jesus, but you're not saved yet. You're not part of God's family yet. You have to do something extra, something else, something more, and then you're in. Then you're saved. And it would have disheartened these new Gentile believers. It would have caused doubt. And it would have frustrated the leaders of this new Gentile church. So what they do, they send a group, including Paul and Barnabas, down to Jerusalem to seek the apostles and the leaders about this particular question. And they travel down, they pass down cities along the way, sharing all the good things that had happened in Acts 13 and 14 that we've looked at the last two weeks. And the believers, after hearing this, they rejoiced in all of this. And then they got to Jerusalem, and they did the same thing. They shared and they rejoiced. But in verse 5, we find some opposition to this. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. It's not new opposition. It's the reason why they traveled down to Jerusalem. But this issue has been building up all throughout Acts 2 this Jew and Gentile tension. If you look back or think back, chapter 6 in Acts, the Gentile widows were being neglected because the Jews were being preferenced. Chapter 8, people in Samaria, the, the region next door, were being saved. These half-bloods that the Jews called them, people that the Jews looked down on. In chapter 11, Cornelius, he's a Gentile guy. He's been saved and Jews relating with unclean Gentiles, people were unhappy again, and now it comes all to a head. And the church, led by the apostles and the elders, they had to address this issue directly. And the council itself begins in verse 6. And Luke here, he records three speakers, three rounds of speaking, and the first is Peter in verse 7 to 11. 
And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. You see, Peter, the apostle, he reflects back on the conversion of Cornelius in chapter 10, and he points to God's work in all of it, First, the role that God gave him for the Gentiles to hear and believe in Jesus. And second, God's witness by giving the Gentiles the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Jews had received the Holy Spirit. And if there's no distinction, if we're all saved the same way, and since the Jews historically knew personally that the law itself couldn't save, the Gentiles shouldn't be burdened in this way too. We read that the assembly falls silent, then Paul and Barnabas, the second speakers, they get up, they recount God's work among the Gentiles. And then James, the brother of Jesus, now he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he gets up and he's the third speaker and shares too in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from, to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I'll return and I'll rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. See, James, he tips his hat to Peter's sharing using his original name Simon or Simeon uh, in Aramaic. Uh, but James, he keeps going. He takes it a step further and he connects this Gentile issue back even further to the Old Testament he quotes Amos 9, verse 11 and 12, Isaiah 43, verse 7, and he shows that it was always God's intention. It was always God's plan to include the Gentiles as part of God's restored people. And James, he implies that to create any barriers and obstacles from this happening is actually standing against the plan and the will of God. So the council so far has heard God's work in the first Gentile convert without keeping the law of Moses from Peter. It's heard God's continued work among the Gentiles through Paul and Barnabas. It's heard God's plan all along for Gentiles to be equal parts of his people from James. And James, he goes on to conclude this issue. He summarizes the council's discussion in verse 19. 
Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So this council make a decision, and there's two parts in this decision. First is the gospel is clarified. The good news of Jesus is clarified. It's salvation by Jesus alone. No circumcision, no keeping the law of Moses needed to be saved, to be counted equally as part of God's family. Salvation by Jesus alone. And the second part is a list of four things for the Gentiles to abstain from. Not as a requirement to be saved, but to demonstrate the end of their old pagan lives worshipping idols and to not to cause offence against the Jews as a result, both believing Jews and non-believing cultural Jews. And all four of these things, food offered to idols, sexual immorality, meat that had been strangled, and blood, they're all rooted in the law of Moses, but they're all part of the pagan idol worship practices back in the first century too. Now we come to the result of the council, and it's, re it's really actioning verse 19 to 21 for the rest of this passage. So there's lots of repetition here. There's two parts and one observation in each part. The first part is sending the letter, communicating the decision to the church in Antioch, and that's verse 22 to verse 29. Not going to read it, but to summarize uh, the council, they choose representatives to go with the letter to Antioch. And Luke actually includes the whole actual letter here. It's distancing, it's about, it says that they distance themselves from the circumcision group. They announce no burden to faith in Jesus alone, but they give the four requirements relating to idolatry. And the observation that I want you to note here is the unity in the council's decision. You see, it's not a contested vote. There's no dissenting factions. Factions, The council, these leaders, these apostles, they were of one accord. They were united. And they were even in the process of communicating this decision, united as one. They sent multiple witnesses to confirm their unity. You see, it's clear here that salvation is really by faith in Jesus alone. Nothing more needed, simply believing in Christ alone. And the second part here is the reception of the letter by the church in Antioch. You see, with an issue as big as this, these new believers in Antioch they might be nervous, waiting for what's happening. What will this meeting decide? And what would that mean for their faith? And we see these Gentile believers in Antioch receiving the news in verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. 
And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they'd spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. You see, these Gentile believers in Antioch, when they received this letter, this news, this update, they rejoiced, they were encouraged, they were strengthened. Sometimes we see theology is a barrier to fellowship. Stop Bible bashing and just love one another. Theology, doctrines, they stop real love and fellowship. But we see here in the end of this passage, clarifying the good news of Jesus, affirming a right gospel, a right theology, it leads to joy, encouragement, unity, strengthening, all indicators of a true Christian fellowship. And while the chapter began in the beginning uh, with verse 1 to 5 with debate, of the gospel message in question, praise being hindered by these naysayers, we see this section ending here with unity, joy, and a reaffirmation of the good news of life in Jesus, that indeed he did it all, that Jesus paid it all, that he took our sins away as he died and rose again, and that all we have to do is to repent and believe in him, to trust in his saving name, nothing more. So today we've come to our last passage in our journey in Acts this year. It's fitting that we end on a core truth about following and believing in Jesus. That as we see these events around the Jerusalem Council, we see the message of the good news of Jesus front and centre. Salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, nothing more. You see, the gospel is free to all who believe in Jesus. And this truth of the gospel, it still stands true today for us, for you, for me. That's how we're saved. That's how we're forgiven. That's how we become part of God's family. That's how we grab hold onto eternal life. This truth that we're saved by faith, in Jesus alone. It's a gift of grace, not earned by works. The gospel is free to all. And as we finish off this morning, I think we see four ways from Acts 15 that this free gospel affects us today. First, we're to guard the good news of Jesus. In some ways, in many ways, this Jerusalem council was called to guard the message of the gospel, to protect it against false, unbiblical, dangerous teachings that pervert the good news of Jesus, that stumble people from the free gift of life in him. And we today were likewise called to care about theology, to care especially about how we're saved, what people are teaching, 
but how one is saved and to guard the good news of Jesus, to guard how we're saved, grace through faith in Christ alone, as he died as an atoning sacrifice in our place for our sins. And that means if someone says it's Jesus plus something else, like tongues, baptism, a certain gifting, works, a certain experience, we have to guard the good news of salvation in Jesus alone. Or maybe it's something trivial, not too big, but Jesus plus something else like a standard of dress, a certain family background, a certain socioeconomic background, a certain political leaning, a certain level of education, a certain cultural background. These things more subconscious more easy to fall victim to, but equally dangerous. We have to guard the good news of salvation in Jesus alone. You see, each of us is called to guard the gospel. We rub shoulders with many different people, with many different worldviews, even differing beliefs under the broader banner of Christianity and the church different gospels swaying us every day. I've been invited in the past year to a local pastors group, and I know for a fact that in this group, most of these guys don't see eye to eye with me on the good news of Jesus, on the gospel message. Some believe it's Jesus plus tradition. Others believe it's Jesus plus tongues. Others again believe it's Jesus plus many other ways to God. And some even believe no Jesus at all. I think there's two ways that you and I can guard the good news of Jesus. First is to be willing to stand firm in the truth of the gospel ourselves. That means if someone says something like, oh, there's all these different paths to God, not just Jesus. Or you just have to do good things and you'll go to heaven. Or you need Jesus plus this to be a Christian. Anything that says Jesus plus something else leads to salvation. That you won't just agree, that you won't just let it go through the keeper, that you'd be willing to guard and protect the gospel and affirm that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. And a second way to guard the gospel is to look at yourself, to reflect if you hold on to anything yourself, whether big or more likely small and trivial, that you think you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to be like this to be saved, to be part of God's family. Or maybe to let it hit home a bit more, you have to believe in Jesus But you also have to be like this before I will consider you part of my spiritual family, God's forever family. What do you hold on to that says Jesus plus this equals saved? Culture, socioeconomic status, education history, personality, social skills, even mannerisms, What do you hold on to 
that says Jesus plus this equals saved. Or bring them to God. Ask for forgiveness and ask for a renewed conviction in the free gift of life in Jesus to all who believe. God calls us to guard the gospel. Second, God calls us to live in light of the gospel. You see, grace doesn't mean that we, ha- we can do whatever we want now that we're saved. Grace, this free gospel, this free gift of life in Jesus, accepting this means that we now live for Jesus, that we're under new owners, that we have a new king that we serve and live for. Not ourselves or the sinful world around us, but the king who's lovingly saved us, our king, our Lord Jesus Christ. And just as the Jerusalem Council gave these four requirements to break from their old pagan and idol-worshipping ways and to use their freedom to live for God and to love others, we today, we're still called to the same mindset today as followers of Jesus, to live in light of the gospel by making complete breaks cutting ties from our old sinful ways and fully, completely obeying and submitting to King Jesus, loving him and loving others, seeking the good of others and being a vessel for others to see God's greatness. You see, God's free gift of salvation is not a free ticket, a free pass to do whatever we want. God calls us to serve our new king, our new ruler, our new boss, the Lord Jesus Christ. The third way this free gospel affects us today is that that we're to unite together in the gospel, around the gospel. How was the result of this council received? Believers were united. They were of one accord They rejoiced, they were encouraged, they were strengthened. That's what affirming the free gift of salvation does. It brings believers together. It brings believers locally together in local churches like ours. It brings believers across cities, regions, countries, around the world, across time, together, united, around the same free, life-giving message. And this ought to excite us as we gather as God's people in any way, shape, or form. But I think we take this unity in in the gospel for granted most of the time. We forget how good our unity is. We focus on our differences instead. Or we even forget how mind-blowing this free gift of life in Jesus is. I know that for me personally, I tend to look at our differences more, whether they be secondary doctrinal differences or differences in how we do church and ministry, and I let that divide me from other brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than to see our common unity in the gospel. And I find myself asking God to change my heart so that I would celebrate our unity in Jesus. 
And of course, we don't want to unite with false teaching, but we don't want to be so narrow that we divide with God-honoring, biblically faithful, and Christ-exalting believers that differ in secondary or third theology and practice, but uphold the same saving message of life in Jesus alone. I think uniting together in gospel looks like this, being excited to gather as fellow believers, whether you're an introvert or extrovert, like people or hate people, being excited to gather as fellow believers, singing and praying together as fellow believers, whether you're a singer or not, whether you're an eloquent prayer or not, being keen to work with like-minded believers in churches, not being insular and solo and doing it alone, being willing to walk alongside and do life with other believers, not because they're your friends, but because you share the same free gift of salvation, that because we're all united in Jesus, your family, the free gift of the gospel calls us to unite together in and around the gospel. Fourth and final thing, God calls us to simply rest, to simply rest in his free gift of the gospel. Being saved in Jesus alone is a free gift. It's a freeing gift. It's supposed to free you, unburden you, just as the song goes that we sung before. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. God calls you to rest in his amazing grace, to let his mercy reign in your life, in your circumstance, in whatever's happening for you this morning, today, this week, the past week, whatever. And there's always something happening, whether it's COVID-related frustrations, maybe the war in Ukraine is troubling you, maybe it's something closer to home like your health, physical, mental, emotional. Maybe your workplace during the week is crazy. Maybe money is tight for you and your family. Maybe you're anxious about what the future holds. Maybe there's family breakdowns. Maybe you're just time poor because you're so crazy busy. Maybe you're suffering for the gospel. Maybe you're stuck in sin. Maybe you're just burdened by life and following Jesus. Well, the Jerusalem Council reaffirms the good news of Jesus is a free gift of salvation. So rest, rest in that free gift. Rest in God's goodness and grace. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. When was the last time that you simply rested in God's grace? To bask in the gospel, to let his mercy reign, knowing that Jesus, he's done all the heavy lifting in winning your salvation and your new life. So as we finish off today, 
Salvation is a free gift. It's found in Christ Jesus alone. We're to guard the gospel. We're to live in light of the gospel. We're to unite together around the gospel. And we're to simply rest in the gospel, in God's goodness, his grace, his free gift of salvation. Let's pray in light of this free gift God has given us. Our God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your free gift of salvation, that you made a way for hopeless sinners that we are to be saved in Jesus and in Jesus alone. We do thank you that Christ alone saves, that we can't add to it, and there's no more strings attached. Father God, help us to care about and guard your free gospel when people distort your good gift of salvation. Help us, Lord, to live in light of your free gospel by bowing all aspects of our lives to King Jesus. Lord God, give us joy as we find unity in your free gospel. And Lord, help us amidst whatever's happening in our lives to rest in, to find freedom and to be unburdened, knowing that you have indeed saved us and Christ has paid it all. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.